welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Cullum Tobin about his latest book, A Guest at the Feast, which is a collection of essays. I think it goes without saying, especially for our listeners, like, Cullum's voice, both in person, but especially in his essays, is just such a joy to read. He has a kind of verve and sparkle in his writing that works in interesting ways with how deeply well-read he is. It's a rare combination of somebody that's both a brilliant thinker and a brilliant kind of prose conversationalist. I would say that that is just a particular character of the Irish, but ah, you know, it was, it was in full glory on this week's conversation. Yes, he is quite the raconteur, and this is the first full-length book I've ever read of Columns. I read his criticism all the time. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing critic as well as being such a well-respected novelist. But I was just struck by how incredibly beautiful his writing is, especially in the title piece of this book, which really was very Proustian and just absolutely knocked me out for how gorgeous it was. And, And also not so conventional because it's very just these remembrances without too much, you know, membrane connecting everything. It's just like you feel that they've really spontaneously arrived to him as he's uh, recording these remembrances of his youth in the small town he grew up in. It's like a really, really profound piece that I just loved. And he's so funny. He's funny. Yes. Very funny guy and a funny writer. Exactly. Oh, and I have um, one quick correction for our listeners, which is that in the interview, as part of a question about gay rights in Ireland, I say that Ireland was the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. That has one very important caveat, which I had forgotten to include, which is that Ireland was the first country to legalize same-sex marriage by popular vote. So that will help readers to understand a little bit more the context when Colm is talking about how they reached out to voters and specifically told stories that helped to convince people to vote to pass gay marriage rights. Right, yeah, and, and this was in a piece that he wrote about the Supreme Court decision on homosexuality being outlawed which also shows just there's a lot of range in these pieces and a lot of them um, mm-hmm. kind of come from times when Colm was more of a, a reporter and an editor. Yes. The collection is very wide-ranging and wonderful and as was our conversation, I would say, wide-ranging. All right, well, let's get to it. be speaking with the writer Colm Tobin. Colm Tobin is the author of many books, including the novels The Magician, which received the Rathbone Folio Prize, The Master, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, Brooklyn, winner of the Costa Award, Nora Webster and the Testament of Mary, as well as the poetry collection Vinegar Hill, which was published last year. In 2022, Tobin was named a laureate for Irish fiction by the Arts Council of Ireland. He is a professor of humanities at Columbia University in New York City, where he joins us from today. He is with us to speak about his latest book, the collection of essays, A Guest at the Feast. The book brings together pieces that Tobin has written over the last three decades, 
from his visceral, forthright, and very funny essay on his cancer diagnosis and treatment to the stirring title essay of the collection, which is an episodic remembrance of his youth in the small town of Enniscorthy in Ireland. The collection also features Tobin's political commentary with pieces that draw on his days as a reporter and magazine editor. These include coverage of the 1983 Supreme Court case against homosexuality in Ireland and his appraisals of three popes. Finally, the book also shows the breadth and depth of Tobin's literary criticism with his considerations of authors from Marilyn Robinson to Francis Stewart. Thank you so much for being here, Colm, and congratulations on this book. Thank you for having me on the show. So, Colm, I wanted to start with the kind of observation that the essays in this collection cover a wide range of your writing from as far back as 1995 to as current as late last year. So I'm wondering kind of what it was like to see work from three very different decades. I mean, I know I'm cheating a little bit because we're very early in our current decade. But what was it like to see those collected together? And I'm wondering if they kind of read differently to you now than they did in the moment when they were published or certainly when you were writing them. It was almost the other way around where it was the pieces that didn't get in You know, in other words, there were a good number of pieces I could have chosen, and most of them didn't work. In other words, they didn't hold up. They were boring for me to read. They'd lost their currency. They just didn't have anything left in them, really, which is what journalism is about. So these were the survivors. And it mattered sometimes who this piece was written for. The piece, for example, on Pope John Paul II was written for an American audience for The New Yorker and emphatically deals with the sort of aspects of the American church that had I been writing for the London Review books or for somewhere else, I would have written much more about the sort of European or even in the African response to the Pope. So that mattered sometimes when I read the pieces. But also I saw more than anything was the sort of freedom that I get from the London Review books where I'm, I'm allowed to go on about something at some length with the Marilyn Robinson piece, they just said, I'm sorry, 12,000 words. I said, Are you, hold on a minute. You can print 12,000 words on politics. Like, how come you can't print it about an important writer? Like, what's going on here? And they said, we're not. What You could argue, oh, you like, we're never printing 12,000 words on Marilyn Robinson. I said, well, how many then? And they said, well, maybe nine. And I said, well, can you cut it? And they cut it. But this is actually the restored piece. This is the, we've been back to the basement and we got the basement tapes. And this is the original uncut version of the Marilyn Robinson. Oddly enough, that writing for that 1995 piece for the Pope, it doesn't seem to me that long ago. But of course, it's 28 years ago, which when I'm now, I'll be 68 soon. So in other words, in 28 years time, I'll be 96. Maybe now won't seem so long ago then. You know, as you say that, actually, as somebody who works between journalism and fiction, how do you manage... As a writer, are those two very different boxes for you? Because on the one hand, you're writing to the moment about the current in journalism, but then in fiction, you're doing that as well, but gesturing usually towards more deep currents in culture, let's say, that are more like timeless. What it feels like is a constant state of emergency where I'm late with the piece. I'm always late with the piece. And in the old days, it was bad because it was Bob Silvers on one side of really, you know, pushing you. We really would love the piece for the next issue for the New York Review of Books. And on the other side, Mary Kay Wilmer is in London and London Review of Books. And you felt permanently guilty. You felt permanently on the run. The problem was if a piece appeared in one paper, the other paper would want to know, where's our piece? And it's still like that. It's like that at the moment. I mean, I'm avoiding everyone at the moment. And then you have your own thing, which is if I don't finish this novel, 
it will somehow or other crumble in my hands. It will be like a piece of ice in my hand. And I have to get back to it. So I have to finish this piece for the paper, for one of the papers, in order to write the novel. And then if I write the novel for too long, I lose, I lose the other. And if I could just, I mean, what I say, I'm just a girl that can't say no. I mean, you know, if I could just say no to someone, then I wouldn't have all these guilt. But I, I don't get time to think about what are the essential. The essential difference, I suppose, is enormous in that you're not working for an immediate editor in the same way. You know, it's not just going to appear soon. The great thing about a novel, I suppose, a novel, how do you define a novel? A novel, perhaps, is someone that no one is really waiting for. You know, it always comes out as a bit of a surprise. I mean, people may be waiting for it. They may have been in the old days waiting for the new George Eliot or waiting for the new Philip Roth, perhaps. But really, nowadays, I don't think anyone's waiting for a novel. So they sort of slip out despite the fact that no one really wants them. And so some people buy them despite themselves. So you're dealing with a sort of fading culture. And it's lovely because there's no great pressure on you then to, as the pressure on George Eliot or on Thackeray or on Hawthorne, to invent a society on paper that no one had really thought of it that way. I don't think that's going to happen again. It may be true for, I think, maybe in the future, trans writing, maybe more immigrant writing, but guys like me, you know, bold old queers, no one's that interested. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder about... um writing about yourself, at least these two first pieces in the book, they're very personal. And if that is something that you're comfortable with, if you would rather take some of the experiences and emotions of yourself and put them into a character rather than kind of piecing together an eye, if it feels more natural almost to you to put experiences into fiction than to write them from your own point of view. The first piece in the book is a cancer piece. It's a memoir. And I promised I wouldn't write it. I hate cancer memoirs. And I think people writing about their battle with cancer is obscene because there's no battle. You just lie there. So I promised not to write it. I got the first sentence walking down the street. It was spring break from Colombia. I had 10 days to myself. I just wrote it. And when I wrote it, then I thought, well, I should show this to someone. Yeah, it was personal. And there were also, I found a tone that I thought was as comic as it could be, but that wasn't self-pitying. So no matter what you're doing, you are projecting a self. It doesn't mean that I didn't suffer from enormous self-pity during that period, but I just wasn't going to write about that because it's just, you just can't write about self-pity. You really can't. But you can write about that. I think one of the things I thought I could write about that might interest people was that men's testicles are sort of funny. And a lot of men, people use the word balls. He's no balls. Or do you have the balls to do that? Look, just shut up. They're horrible little things dangling in a little sack. And um, I thought I could make jokes about my balls. Only having one ball, which I must say, I feel immensely undeprived. (laughs) So I thought I could write that. But the other pieces are very guarded. The other pieces about my family and about growing up are very guarded in the sense that a lot of things are not in there. Well, yeah, that's the thing I, I really noticed about that piece, which I was so moved by and was so, thought was just so beautifully written, but that it is a coming of age piece in many ways. And the things that would be very, very important in most coming of age pieces would be kind of an awakening of sexuality and a dealing with your father's death, which you just really mentioned so briefly. And, um, you know, I noticed that those things were not in there. And I wondered, had that been a conscious decision? I assumed it had been. And then why and um, what you were up to keeping out those very important, you know, classic coming of age subjects in a piece about 
your young adulthood? Two things. One is that that I don't have anything new to say much about coming out or being gay in a small place. And if I did have, I would probably know how to use them in a novel. But writing it all down would require an awful lot of slow work. I could make it kind of comic. I could make it really sad. I could investigate it in all sorts of ways, but none of them would satisfy me because some of it is, feels really private. Some of it feels fully unresolved, which is why it might make its way into fiction. There's a long description of a music festival, a sort of Woodstock that happened in my town in 1967. And I have a big description of going to a pub with my father until the early hours of the morning, and I'm 12 years old. I think even in the audio book, it's there, but I couldn't put it. I left it out, I just cut it out. It was, it was there up to very recently. But my father had a stroke that night and died soon afterwards. So that was the last night that I was ever with him, really. And I just felt it was too stark to put in that. I just thought, just leave it as it is and let it stand. But don't try and look for pity or startle the reader. So there is a lot left out in those pieces. It's not a, it's fun to be able to write a memoir that's really short where you just put in a few images that stay with you, not just the ones that stay with you, but the ones that you're satisfied with as images that you can write down and they don't seem to need any more work. Anything else from that period would need much more detail, much more care. That's so interesting. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm at once shocked by the revelation, but I can now, if I put on my editor's hat, understand why you couldn't go down that route because that would have taken that essay in a wildly different direction to know that this very touching moment you have with your father at the pub observing this is then also the last time that you saw your father. I want to actually return to the cancer essay because one of the things that I think I found so haunting there, and you you set it up this way, is that when you were going through chemotherapy, there are two things. One is pain, and then the other is the inability to think, which you present as a kind of comic situation. But I imagine that for a writer and a thinker and a journalist, you know, all of those things, that must have been absolutely terrifying to be, as you described several times for listeners, just staring straight ahead at nothing and thinking nothing as you're staring. I think the most surprising and the most frightening, I suppose, was the music part. Was that I listen to music all the time. I don't listen to music when I'm working, but like I came in earlier, the first thing I did was I put on a Brahms quartet and I just sat there listening to it. What's really odd and hard to explain to anyone is that if you're undergoing serious chemo, music sounds like confused jumble. It somehow or other gets into the brain all the wrong way and it sounds like awful noise. Just turn it off. And so despite the fact that I was in a room in Dublin with infinite numbers of CDs, Going back 30 years, you know, the stuff that I've been keeping and stuff I've always wanted to listen to and it would have been the perfect time to do, you know, your full Don Giovanni and all the recordings. Not a sound. The other stuff, yeah, staring straight ahead, but you were having thoughts, but I couldn't really read. And you see, I couldn't sleep. So all those things gathered up, really. I mean, I sort of list them. The business of pain is <laughs> that there's a drug you use if you're having problems with your white cells, I think, and you have to take a drug. It's really expensive. I mean, it costs a thousand bucks per injection that will go into your marrow and make the cells actually artificially, but the but they are real when they're made. And uh, I just read the stuff about it and it said, you know, there could be about a week after you take it, there could be an intense reaction, which would be a sort of pain around the midriff, around the pelvic area. Exactly a week later, 
about six in the morning, there it was. And it was pain like no other pain. And it came pulsing and it felt that my pelvic area was going to break, burst. Literally, there was too much activity going on. But the thing was, as I was writing this, a sentence came into my head. And I loved the sentence so much that it made up for all the pain, which was, I thought I was going to have a baby. Once I thought of that sentence, I wish I thought of it at the time because it really just felt, well, the whole thing is okay now because I actually found an image, you know, that is so absurd that it sort of rescues the pain from the sort of memory I have of it. Yeah, so sometimes the writing can really help. I was curious about that in Brush with the Law, the story that you're covering this case in Ireland about the outlaw of homosexuality and and you're going deeper and deeper into this case and there's a moment where these people that you're meeting with basically give you an idea for a novel or they help you complete a novel that you're working on because they are such quintessential characters. And it's almost like that makes the experience for you. So in some ways that told me this a hierarchy that you may have between journalism and fiction that the best part of the experience was that it poetically completed or began something in a novel for you. And I could imagine that for most writers, the ability to be able to write about something is what completes experience, what makes everything worth it. I wonder, you know, how that comes into play maybe in these essays, in, in essays that are about, at times, about politics. Yeah, I mean, what happened was that I, as a journalist, I began to write a history of the Irish Supreme Court. And there was nothing, I mean, really, there was nothing on, there was no legal, no one had done any work on this. And I found, because I was editor of the magazine, that some of the judges would speak to me, would see me. And a lot of more junior judges would see me and a lot of barristers would see me. So I spent, you know, I had a lot of time on my hands because I was the editor. This was my big project. And I spent maybe a year working on it. What I found was I was getting a lot of information. I was slowly piecing together the article, which is really going to be filled with a sort of narrative of how the law had developed. This is because the Irish has a constitution from 1937 only. But of course, I was seeing these very conservative men with whom I obviously had nothing in common. You know, men who were even opposed to contraception. And uh, not speak of homosexuality, but they began to remind me of home. They began to remind me of my father and his brother. I managed to have a very good relationship with, say, his brother, even though he had very different views on everything. We managed just to keep all that aside and to maintain a sort of decent relationship. But I found the men interesting. And it began to come into my mind what a novel would look like if you were to explore the inner lives of one of these very senior men. I mean, think Anthony Kennedy, you know. In fact, Anthony Kennedy read the book and liked the book. And it's generally liked by judges because it, you know, it isn't written by an angry young man against judges. It's written by someone who simply got himself softened by being in their presence. And I think in a way, that's what a novelist is, someone who's ready to be softened, someone who might have strong views on some matter, and those views would soften or would that self-suppression becomes an important part of the novel writing process, even if you're, I think if you were writing what's called autofiction, that you would suppress various things about yourself to let others, to privilege others, to let others dominate. And so too in this book, which is my second novel, The Head of Blazing, it's told from the point of view of a conservative judge in his early 60s in Ireland. I remember going to London for something and someone just presuming that it would be some old, crotchety sort of fellow with, you know, very strong conservative views. And I arrived, you know, and I was, I was not that person. So you learn from something like that. That journalism, yes, was about building up the case so that any reader would have a lot of information. But the novel is not about knowledge. The novel is about illusion, that you're creating an illusion 
for the reader, that the reader's in the room, that the reader's in this man's mind, that the reader has this man's memories, this way of seeing. And so you're imagining. And the only way you can imagine is to soften yourself or suppress yourself. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Colm Tobin, author of A Guest at the Feast. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're joined today by Jenny Liu, author of the collection of poems, Muscle Memory. And Jenny is joining us now to give us a book recommendation on a book she likes to read. What book are you going to recommend? I want to recommend a collection of poems by Kuhn Woon titled Water Chasing Water. I had the honor of listening to Kuhn read a couple of weeks ago, and his poems started off almost as if they were just everyday speech, and just very slowly, very quietly, they made these little moves that put the poems together into some of the most moving things that I've ever heard. And uh, I've been just reading the book and crying ever since. Can you say the title of the book one more time? Water Chasing Water. We've been speaking with Jenny Liu, author most recently of Muscle Memory. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Colm Tobin, author of A Guest at the Feast. To return to kind of that theme of repression and how you open the particular essay that Kate is talking about, it strikes me that you have lived through some incredible changes in LGBTQ rights and culture in Ireland from the 1950s to the present. You know, there's a beautiful moment, I'm going to butcher it because I don't have the text with me right now, but this beautiful moment where you talk about how when you were growing up and kind of a young man, that it seemed like for things like gay rights or even loving other people seemed at once totally normal, but also like something that would never come to pass as something that would be legal or otherwise like, you know, not persecuted or oppressed. But then Ireland obviously is the first I believe, country in the world in 2015 to legalize gay marriage. And speaking from my vantage point in the U.S., you know, now it seems like we're seeing a huge backlash against that, that at least from my vantage point here doesn't seem to be happening in Ireland. So I'm just curious how you see that arc both within Ireland and if you have any thoughts about the kind of backlash that seems to be fomenting in the United States. I mean, is this a Pandora's box that can't be closed really again in the way that it was, say, in your childhood? Or is this always a slip and slide that can easily go back? I think it's important to for anyone who's dealing with a conservative backlash to look at how that referendum in 2015 was run in Ireland and what it did. First of all, they brought in the person who knows most about how elections work in Ireland. He just happened to be sympathetic to the general gay idea. He himself was the straightest guy you could ever meet. and uh, But he knew this. He knew how elections work, how demographics work. And he was an expert. And they brought him in permanently. I mean, he was a barrister, so he could give the time to it. They then set about, there was a group over there who were in charge of anything online has to be disputed now, today, this second. But the main thing was, they asked people like me, could you go quiet? Could we have your silence for these three weeks of the campaign? Please don't come on the radio or television without asking us if it's okay. And in general, don't speak. And everyone knows what you think. So shut up. 
And if you're thinking of Irish elections are still around door to door, you know, you go to every tour. And if you're thinking of doing this, don't go alone and don't bring your boyfriend, bring your sister, your mother, your grandmother or your father and let them speak. Let them come to the door and say, this is my son. He's gay. And my other son, we were at his wedding last week and it was so great to see him. So happy. We would like to be able to go to this son's wedding as well. And we would really ask you to help us with that. Because if you don't vote, yes, we won't ever be able to see this moment. And you stand there as the gay man and you go quiet. You just look, just try to look humble and look, don't look angry and don't wear your earrings or do any of that stuff. Just look really, try to look really normal if you can. And uh, so I did one radio. They said to me, like we talked about it beforehand, don't be angry, be sad. <laughs> so I thought it was great. I said, um, you know, I do feel a bit funny. I do feel it's a sad thing for me that I'm used by the Irish government for many things. You know, I represent Ireland in various places. And yet the very thing that I want to do, the core of my life, which is about love, I cannot have a ritual surrounding that you can have. And what I want to ask someone who's voting no is, why do you think that I should not have that right? I know you have that right, and I'm all for you having that right. I want it. And why do you think I can't have it? But keep your voice down. Don't go all sad. Go all sad. The referendum was won by changing the minds of middle-aged men. If you can't change the minds of middle-aged men, you can't win. You can change women's minds because they have, they're closer to their daughters and sons' feelings and they wouldn't like to see any of their children, you know, done in this way. But a father with a lesbian daughter in Ireland is very uneasy. And the thing was to make him feel that his daughter will be happy. Like just, I should say, I wrote speeches for various politicians. And one of them was, you know, if your daughter told you she was lesbian, you'd stay awake all night. And one of the things you think, is there any way I can say something to her in the morning that will make her feel that she's going to be in a place that will treasure her and welcome her and honor her and look after her and that she will be happy? Is there anything I can say to her in the morning as her father? And she's <laughs> so in other words, we took love and family from them, from the Catholic Church, from the conservative right. We took the words love and family. We took them and said, we want them. They're our words. If you don't mind, we'd like to share in your love and in your family. We are, before we are anything, and we're members of a family. We were born into families. Our families love us. And uh, honestly, it was a, we had a seriously great time saying all this. And then two days before the election, I got a great audience of kids in Trinity College, where I tried to talk about the history. Try to say, you know, this has not just started now. You know, I went back to that Supreme Court judgment and I went back to earlier writers, you know, after Oscar Wilde. And, but the audience was, a, they were electric with hope, this audience of kids. And as this guy stood up at the end and said, I'll tell you, my father, when I told him I was gay, he said, if you're going to gay clubs, I want to come with you. And I said, are you gay as well? He said, no, I just want to make sure that no one beats you up or that no one does anything to you. And it was that sort of idea of everyone having a sort of funny story, that sort of goofy story about, but it was all about family. It was all about, you know, my father loves me. But I, I wonder if it's possible. I don't know how you would to take some of that in America and see mm. what could be done with it. Yeah, that's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of the essay that we were referencing earlier, the title essay of the book, I guess, at the feast, where you talk about your parents' experience of Ireland from, you know, the time that they were young up until their 40s. And by the time they were in their 40s, it was a whole other country. Early on in that brush with the law essay, you kind of say that you don't believe that Irish politics will ever change. But yet they did in your parents' time. And you're saying that, you know, you've seen them change now. Maybe 
the emphasis on family shows that there's a theme. Actually, things haven't changed as much as one would think. But I, I wonder just how you think of that, and especially in relation to all the changes that your parents saw. I wrote in that essay that at the time of that Supreme Court judgment, which would have been 1983, that I just didn't see change coming. I just didn't see any possibility of breaking the ice of things. But I mean, the miracles happened. Big one was the Northern Irish one, where it just seemed so unlikely that all the stars would align, but they did. And um, the other one being, in the run-up to this referendum, I was in New York and the phone rang, so I said, turn on the radio now, like just the Irish, you can get it. You know. And it was Leo, Leo Bracker, who's our prime minister, and Leo is a policy wonk, and he's quite conservative. He uh, just said in the middle of the interview, where the interviewer, it was one of those personality, personal interviews, and he just said, well, as a gay man, I said, well, as a what? And the interviewer told me later that it had been arranged that he would say this. When she asked him the first question leading to it, he, he just couldn't do it. He didn't do it. And then she had to lead in another question, you know, as a gay man. So Leo turned out to be a gay man. And he didn't just do that. You know, he decided to have a state reception, a state reception, Dublin Castle, the whole business for gay people in the aftermath of the referendum. And he got a researcher to research back to find activists from the 60s, people who had just gone home in despair, you know, in the 60s or 70s, 80s, and to find them and to invite them formally to come. And you know, I had a friend in Italy who was, he was a menace to Dublin respectable society in the 70s, meaning he dressed up, he said anything he wanted, he was completely queer and outrageous in the 70s in Dublin. And he's been living in Italy for 30, 40 years, and he got this invite, come to Dublin Castle, to a state reception, to honour what he had done in those years. So like things really did change. And it became very fashionable for a while to be gay or lesbian. I think it's got, people have just gone back to normal since then. To circle back to something that you were talking about before when you were talking about a piece that you were working on for the LRB and how it was, you know, 10,000 words. Well, can you, you know, 12,000, can you cut it down to nine? You know, it does strike me that your essays in this collection and more generally do tend to be long form. And that's the kind of genre that is celebrated by publications like the LRB, like the New Yorker. But, you know, Recently in the U.S., it seems that those kind of literary and cultural journals, not those specific ones, but of that ilk, are coming under what we might call not cultural attack, but something more pernicious, like a fiscal attack. We've had the closing, for example, of our much-beloved book forum, Astro Magazine closed within a couple of months of opening. I'm just curious if this sort of thing is playing out in England and Ireland, kind of where you a lot of your publishing takes place if that's happening over there and what's at risk in kind of losing these forums for long, complex and craft-focused kind of thought and writing. In Ireland, we have the Arts Council. So the Dublin Review, which runs long-form pieces, which Brush With the Law was published, that's still going. It comes out every three months. And we have the Stingy Fly, which is the equivalent sort of literary magazine. So it's not, I mean, something like the closing of book form is such an odd business because art form seems to me to make so much money that closing the other thing just seemed to me a form of cruelty and a strange piece of vandalism. But it, you know, things depend on the market, depend on a single owner. So it's a different system. You're yeah. saying because of public support that exists more in Ireland. Yeah, that these magazines could not survive without the bedrock of Arts Council support. And the Irish Arts Council tends to be very conservative about cutting things. You know, in England, they often just cut a whole thing out. In Ireland, we don't do that as much, where it's, once you're in the council's orbit, you tend to stay within it. So there's been a lot of continuity in it. Speaking of Ireland and home, I wanted to go back to the piece, A Guest at the Feast. 
I could feel in that piece just your enchantment with where you grew up and what you call in the piece, the landscape of the soul. Even at the end of the piece, you're describing a view of the sea you have in this house that you build and you say that it was never the same. Nothing is ever, not even once the same color of texture in the world out there is what you write. I just thought that that to have that relationship to the place that you're from, that you're that you're still interested, that you're still curious, that there still seems like it's it's ever changing and worthy of description and attention seems unique to me. And not everyone has that. Maybe this is more an American thing, but I don't think that many people have that with the place that they're from, or not everyone, that they're still so interested and moved and that it stays with them in that deep way. Maybe that's more of a writer thing, but I wondered just how you think that kind of continuing curiosity and openness to where you're from has affected your writing? It goes like this, that I wrote a first novel, which is mainly set in Barcelona and the Catalan Pyrenees. And I had to bring, the characters are Irish, but I had to bring them home at one point for the novel. I didn't know where to bring them. Could have been to Dublin, you know, just go home to Dublin. But I found that I was writing a section which was set in that seascape in the southeast of Ireland where I'm from. And I didn't plan to use it. It wasn't something I had ever thought about using either the town or the landscape. But I found when I wrote that chapter describing the sea and the grey light and the sort of softness of everything, that it was, um, I was writing better. I was more relaxed. And it suddenly struck me, I could write novels set there. (laughs) And every street I would know, every street corner, every shop, every sound, every inflection of voice, accent, where the train is, where the train line is, where the river goes. And I could do that. I could probably imagine back a generation and a half, maybe, to my parents' lives because I'd heard enough about it. I'd listened enough. My four grandparents are from the town, which means you go back further. And so you could trace probably back very far and find that, you know, the family is there. And because my father was a teacher and involved in local politics and involved with the Catholic Church, we tended to know everybody or something about everybody. And because my uncle had been involved in the revolution, there was another set of people we knew. And so there was a constant sense of you walk down the street in the town and everyone knew who you were from the age of four or five. As soon as you could walk on your own, people say, oh, that's who, you know, people would know you. And the same thing happened 10 miles away. We went for the summer to this beautiful place. I mean, it's a really remote place on the coast. And even still, if I walked there, I went for a walk, I would meet somebody older than me who would be able to say, Oh, I remember your mother when she came down that time. So you're back constantly in it. And so, um, I mean, I sometimes I drive into the town just to get something down there. And um, every street has memories of all sorts of things. Oh, it's very rich in that. So what seems to have happened is I've written 10 novels. I think five of them are set in this landscape. And five of them are as far away as I possibly could get from it. <laughs> in other words, I wrote a novel called The Blackwater Lightship and I just couldn't bear it anymore. There were, I think there were six characters over six days in a house on that coast bitching at each other, like filled with making tea and shouting and arguing and recrimination. And I just, when it was over, there was a lot of rain outside. When it was over, I just said, I never, ever, ever want to write about that again. That is over. I've done it. I've done marriage family. I've done marriage landscape. I've done all the recrimination business. No more. And I wrote a novel about Henry James called The Master. Again, when I was finished that, 
I felt this is just nonsense trying to write about duchesses and famous novelists and being, you know, some sort of millionaire, you know, so all that stuff is palaces. What do I know about that? And so I wrote Brooklyn because I, in the response, in a way, just never again to write about people who are people like Henry James, you know, he's his family. So I wrote a very, with the language very curtailed, with everything very subdued, with the characters' circumstances very subdued, every color subdued. But I don't think I could have written it had I not broken all my rules by writing The Master, you know. So it's, I think there are five novels set in that landscape, and there's one more coming. So that'll be six. Ooh, exciting. One more thing about that piece, and also the first piece in this book, there's this kind of like inflection point where I feel as the reader that you are really pushing yourself, you know, that you kind of are pushing, that you decide that you have to push harder on the writer. In the cancer essay, it's this part where you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, was there a big crowd at the hospital? And in the, I guess at the feast essay, it's this part where you kind of tell yourself, try saying it again. But I was so interested in that technique or this moment where the essay kind of gains this force that does seem like an epiphanic kind of moment. And it's also such a splitting of the self in both cases that there's the writer and there's the narrator almost. And the writer is saying, push yourself harder to the narrator. That's how I took it. It seems to me probably true in any endeavor, but certainly in in trying to make books and trying to make paintings maybe there's a moment where you've got to think no one has any interest in this subject and if you don't do something they'll have no more interest in it either with you you know and i remember at one stage actually using the thing to talk to myself just literally saying up come on up 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 meaning stop writing these dull sentences do something I mean, one of the jokes you can make is, look, bring a rat into the... As she walked up the stairs, she saw a rat. But that's too cheap. But it has to be something that will do something. And you can do it in a poem. You know, you can break a sonnet in the strangest way, for example, in a line break. But you can't... It's got to be organic in a book, but it's got to be there because if you don't do it, the mind is a lazy thing. You just feel this is going to be okay. I'm describing something. It's fine. It's never fine. I mean, it's never ever fine. And uh, yeah, I mean, the business of going to the mirror if you've got chemo is the most frightening one. And if you do it for the readers, I actually looked like a, I looked like a scarecrow. I mean, my eyebrows, you know, are gone. Like the whole business of me is gone. And look at me. And then you say, well, look at you. You know, you start talking to the person in the mirror. I mean, look what has happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> It's an amazing technique. I, I could really feel jolted to attention in both instances and very moved. You know, as I was reading these essays in preparation for our conversation today, and was obviously, as many of your essays call us to do, you know, thinking about other Irish writers, you know, Joyce, and in particular, I was very pleased to be reminded of John McGarren's excellent novel, The Dark, several times, which I have not read in several decades myself, and it's a perfect novel to go back into. But what struck me across all of these kind of references is the preservation, and you were kind of talking about this a little bit in the last question, is the preservation of of space and culture, right? So the preservation or the attempt to get down a moment or experience in Ireland. And one of the things that I was, I've been thinking about Recently, and the kind of the response to it, and forgive me, this is a little bit of field, 
But, you know, Paul Mescal at the BAFTAs responded to a question from a TG4, which is a public broadcast station in Ireland, kind of question in Irish. And this, you know, at least as it was reported over here, this was moving to many people back in Ireland, not least because Irish, or as some people call it, Gaelic, is one of the most endangered European languages. It definitely prompted me to go back to Duolingo in my own sad way, you know, as like an homage to my grandmother who tried to learn Gaelic herself and and struggled, as you also recount how difficult it is. I'm curious what your relationship is to Irish or Gaelic as a language and how you feel about efforts to keep it alive, or if it doesn't really resonate much for you as kind of like a, a cultural tradition. I suppose that, you know, I'm from the east of Ireland where we, Irish would not have been spoken in the town. I mean, for centuries, I mean, it isn't like the West. So the West for me has always been different and exotic. And of course, the idea of being on one of the islands and being in a bar and, and everyone speaking Irish. And then I found that I had friends who were writers, Miholo Canila being one, Carlo Sharkey being another, who naturally spoke in Irish to each other. And then I got to know some singers, Irdo Linard or Myra Nigonal or De La Soleri. And, you know, you'd be in their conversation and realize what a nuisance I am because I'm speaking English. And they're politely talking English because of me. But if I wasn't here, they'd be talking Irish to each other. And of course, of course, if you're Irish, that seems like a terrible loss. And it seems like a disaster of, of every sort. What's mysterious is why people did not become bilingual in the 19th century. That, you know, a lot of people realized that after the famine and second half of the 19th century, that their children were going to emigrate and that Irish would be no use to them. But why they didn't just let the thing happen bilingually, but they didn't. They wanted it to stop. They wanted Irish to stop. I mean, in families, just simply the parents who both spoke Irish would stop speaking Irish to each other as soon as the children were born and make it into an English-speaking household and keep their Irish language a secret or not something to be displayed. It was a shame attached to it because it got associated with poverty. And so it's been, I mean, when I went to Catalonia and found the Catalans were speaking Catalan, of course, speaking Catalan in Catalonia is a sign of, of wealth. It's a sign that you actually come from, that you're middle class. I mean, it may not be fully like that, but that's the sign. The sign is wealth. Whereas in Ireland, the sign is that you belong to a very small farm in the west of Ireland. And I think that's changing. And Paul Mescal is good old Paul for doing that. You know, there's no one in Ireland who wouldn't feel that's great that he's doing that. Maybe to close, I just wonder if you can impart any secrets to listeners about how prolific you are. Because I, I read you very often in the New York Review of Books, the LRB, and you seem to put out novels every few years. So you've really got it down. I'm wondering what your schedule is like, how you, you say you wrote that cancer piece in 10 days that you had off. So it gives me some sense of, of what you do, but how do you write so much? Oh, I think I would have written it more quickly than that. 10 days would be a lot. In other words, it's probably about seven or 8,000 words. There are a few simple things. First one is when you're young and starting, you've got to be able to control your weekend. That if you're out drinking, taking drugs all weekend, there's no chance you're going to be able to write during the week. The second one is um, finish everything you start. <laughs> just finish everything you start. Just, just finish everything you start. The third thing is that you can work in the morning and you can work in the afternoon. And I used to think that you finish about six. Unfortunately, I told someone this who's a biographer. And biographers really need, you know, said, no, 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 no. You finish at six for an hour. You take from six to seven off and you go back at least three nights a week, if not four you work until you're in your pajamas. In other words, you put on your pajamas at around seven and you go back to work and you work until midnight. It's very hard to keep a relationship going. It's very hard, for example, to have a drink habit or a drug habit or a TV habit or any sort of habit 
But uh, there should be days where you should be able to work. And that means work. I mean, that means to stop, like, just stop all this stuff about email. Stop all this stuff about I'm tired. Of it. Just get on with it. I mean, just get on with it. Like, just, you know, this is your big chance. Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel I'm as lazy as sin, actually. But Ah, well, I guess whatever your version of laziness is, is really working for you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Colin, for speaking with us. Thank you very much, both of you. That was Colm Toybin. His latest book is A Guest at the Feast. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.